Hello and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for everyone who loves cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Um, I We say this every time, but I'm excited. We're so excited. We're so excited. Um, it's always nice when we have, I mean, I think we've gotten a lot of really good feedback from our listeners about our guests because we get top-notch guests. Amazing guests. <laughs> Great guests. Um, and we always get really nice and lovely feedback from our listeners. And uh, we love having guests on, one, because we don't have to do any work, and two... <laughs> Because we get to learn about stuff that we would otherwise never even think to do research on oh, and present on, let alone, like, you know, be able even to give a book report about it. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So today, I'm very excited, as and as is Julia excited, um, that we have uh, a guest on today, Jordan S., who is currently getting her PhD from George Mason University. Jordan, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, Jordan. Hi guys, thanks so much for having me. I work in a microbial ecology lab uh, at George Mason, as Lauren says. Um, I work on coral reefs, which so and what that means basically is that I look at the microbes and mostly the bacteria that live in and on and around these corals to see what they're doing to the corals, what they're doing to the environment as a whole, and kind of the the role that they're playing in that environment. So I'm really excited today to talk about um, coral reefs and. Um, just give a little background into that, talk a little bit about my research, talk a little bit about microbes. Um, so I'm excited for that today. That's so cool. I did, so I'm assuming, all right, I'm, I'm not going to give anything away, but I'm just <coughs> assuming that there's a lot of microbes. I tried to keep it as little as possible because, well, as little as possible for me. <laughs> um, sure, sure, yeah. Because I know that microbes are not everybody's favorite topic. I know that people find them boring or a little bit scary. And so I'm trying Never. to make them a little bit more accessible, um, but in an interesting way. So that's my goal for today. Awesome. Oh, that's so yes, please take us away. Okay, so I just want to start with a little disclaimer. I know that the ocean in general is not a favorite topic on this podcast. <laughs> it's very uh, large and that- deep and big. Yes, it's scary. a little bit Jordan's so scary. Yes, it's heebie-jeebie inspiring. Yes. Um, so my goal today is to kind of demystify the ocean for y'all and for the listeners um, and for everyone out there. Um, because yes, the ocean is deep and dark and scary and yes. very powerful. It has an inherent danger to it. You do have to be careful around the ocean. It really deserves respect. But at the same time, it's a very beautiful place. It's a very weird and wonderful place. And so mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to bring in that weird and wonderful a little bit that I think we sometimes forget about because the ocean is so intimidating. So terrifying, yeah. <laughs> I like coral reefs in particular because I think it's kind of a baby step into this process. Okay, it's yeah. warm, shallow water. You have a rum drink in your hand. Like mm. Everything's very colorful. All the critters are very charismatic. So coral reefs are like Oceans 101 for people who don't really like the ocean. So that's my goal for today, to kind of demystify and bring a positive energy to the ocean. I'm um, on board. And... My topic today is kind of divided into three parts. We're going to talk about what is a reef, different types of reefs, where they are, what actually lives on the reef. So I am a biologist at heart, um, so I'm really interested in all the things that live there. So we'll talk a little bit about um, that mm-hmm. and then why reefs are important and why mm-hmm. I study them and what why it's important for people in the general public to know about reefs. So Great. part one, what is a reef? Um When I first started learning about reefs, the first definition I ever heard was given by my undergrad oceanography professor as anything shallow enough and hard enough to sink your ship on, (laughs) which I thought was really hilarious and stuck with me. It's a very um, kind of 
not technical definition, but it's very much a sailor's definition. Oh, sure. Um, mm. And before we were able to explore the ocean, before that technology was developed, this was really it. This was all we knew. We didn't know what was going on down there, but we knew it was dangerous and we knew it was causing problems. Um, <laughs> so this was what we knew about reefs. Um, so now we have more of a geological definition, which basically a reef is any kind of underwater ridge made of a stable material um, of any kind. So there's lots mm-hmm. of different stable materials. And this is known as the substrate. Um, so different types of reefs are defined by this substrate that they're built upon. Uh, we have biotic reefs, which is what you typically would think about. These are things reefs that are built by living organisms. So mm-hmm. oysters, sponges, corals, mm-hmm. um, and even extinct different types of reefs um, 100 million years ago. Reefs were primarily built out of an organism called rudists, which is a mollusk, um, but they're not around anymore. Um, we also have artificial reefs that you maybe don't always think about when you mm, think about mm-hmm. reefs. And a common example of this would be oil rigs. So anything you put in the ocean, things are going to grow on. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, That's so, cool. Yeah, so artificial reefs can be built out of all kinds of materials. They are actively building artificial reefs to try to reestablish some of the coral reefs that are um, we're losing. So artificial reefs mm-hmm. are becoming more and more important. Uh, we also have deep water reefs. I'm not touching on this today. I don't know much about deep water reefs. They're really cool. They have very um, unique organisms on them. But as you could probably imagine, they are found in deep water, usually cold. Mm. Um, when I'm talking about reefs today, and when I say reef, I'm specifically talking about shallow water, tropical coral reefs. Mm. Pretty. So, yeah, pretty yes. reefs. These are my favorite kinds of reefs. Yeah. Not biased at all. <laughs> um, so corals are, are actually animals. I think this is a really important place to start. Uh, people don't usually know this. They get confused. Is it an animal? Is it a plant? Is it a rock? What is it? What's yeah. going on? Um, corals are animals. They're in the phylum Cnidaria. And I promise I'm not going to use too much Latin today. I tried to minimize the Latin. But as a reef biologist, we primarily work with Latin names. Uh, we don't really use the common names of things because they get confusing. Um, so I will introduce some Latin names here today. So Cnidaria is a big one. These are the corals. They're called that because of their stinging cells. Um, they are called cnidocytes. So that's how they get that name. Oh, wow. And corals... Um, in Nidaria are related to jellyfish and sea anemones. So those are all together. All those stinging kind of mm. squishy mm-hmm. guys, those are all yeah. in phylum Nidaria. So there are two kind of big groups of corals. We have our stony corals, which is what I study, what we're going to talk about. We have our soft corals. This is um, the ones you really think about, the like sea fans that are like waving mm. around in the ocean, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and then the stony corals that I know and love so much, these are actually as you can imagine, stony corals, they're hard, they're rocky. Mm -hmm. Um, They're colonial animals made up of polyps. So each polyp looks like a little teeny tiny sea anemone. It has tentacles up at the top, and then it has kind of a square bottom with a mouth that um, it sits on the bottom of the ocean. And um, these polyps will actually reproduce asexually. So they split in half and split in half and split in half until they form this huge colony of genetically identical individuals, but they're all connected by a thin layer of tissue. So when you think about like, what a coral as a whole looks like. It's actually could be up to millions of these little individual tiny polyp animals um, that all live together. So oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so they're like clones of each other, essentially. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes, they're all they're exactly the same genetically. It's like, yeah, literally exact same DNA sequence in every single one of them because they just split apart. <laughs> yeah. Corals also produce sexually. We're not going to talk about that today. They have eggs and sperm that go up in the water and mix around. But we uh, so wait, you came all the way on this podcast and decided not to tell us about coral sex. Come on. <laughs> oh, no. 
See, I no, love I'm kidding. I'm kidding. coral spawning. That is the topic of my PhD, but that is why I would just go way too deep. This podcast oh, yep. would be four hours long. Oh, I could talk to you about I get that it. all night. So <laughs> we'll stick to they reproduce asexually, they split apart, and they form these colonies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the polyps themselves will secrete calcium carbonate, which creates this little cup mm-hmm. that the coral sits in called a coralite. Um, and then as the colony grows, as these polyps continue to multiply and multiply, they grow upward and outward. Um, building more and more of this calcium carbonate on top of each other. And that is actually what forms the reef structure. So when you think about the reef, it is built by these little teeny tiny organisms that are working together to build something massive and amazing. And this reef structure is what supports all the life that we see on the reef. So corals are really important. They are foundational to the reef itself. So um, how, I mean, I'm sure depending on the kind of, I guess, species, how big are these polyps like on average? You said they're teeny teeny, but are they like microscopic? Are they like the size of a period at the end of a sentence? Like, yeah, oh, they're not that small. So I guess I overestimate, I over exaggerated a little bit. There, some of them are, we'll say, pencil eraser sized uh, to like great. maybe dime sized, and mm-hmm. then so okay. those are the round polyps, and then you have some that are like really long and wiggly. Like if you think of like a, what a brain coral looks like. Ooh, yeah, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so the polyps sit in there, and those are much bigger polyps. You also have corals that are actually just one giant polyp, so not all of the corals fit into this colonial framework. And some that are, like, dinner plate size, and it's just one big polyp. So (laughs) that's a great question, actually. (laughs) Good. Great. Moving on, we have uh, different types of reefs. um, And these are basically reefs are characterized by their shape and their shape depends on the geological and oceanographic processes that were occurring during the formation of the reef. So these are things like the rise and fall of sea level, um, the sinking of the seabed and erosion. Our first reef type are fringing reefs, or sometimes these are called shore reefs. Um, These are the most common, and this is what you will usually think about when you think about just like a reef in general. These are the ones that are found close to shore. You can usually swim to them um, and they follow along the coastline. And the corals will extend out from shore, usually less than 100 meters, um, but though there are some exceptions to this. So they're pretty, they're really close in to the shoreline. Mm. Um, The top of the reef is also pretty flat, and it's pretty consistently just below the seawater level. So usually three to six feet um, is where the top of the reef hits below sea level. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then barrier reefs are what, like, I feel people are most familiar with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are the largest type of reef, um, and they're usually separated out from land by a large deep lagoon. So that's kind of what differentiates it from the fringing reef. It has a similar structure, but it's just further out away from land. It's not right up against the shore. You usually can't swim to the barrier, for example. Mm. Um, And the most important characteristic of this barrier reef is that um, the outer edge formed in open water rather than up against the shoreline. And that's really what makes it different from a fringing reef. Um, Some examples of barrier reefs. I'm sure everyone knows this one, the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, This (laughs) is the biggest barrier reef on Earth. This is the biggest reef system on Earth. Um, And it can be seen from space. It has more than 130,000 square miles of reefs um, in it. And I'm originally from Texas, so I'd love to include this little fact, but it's half the size of Texas. So that's a huge area. (laughs) Yeah, that's very big. (laughs) Um, a barrier reef that's very near and dear to my heart that I feel like less people know about, it's the second largest barrier reef on Earth, is the Mesoamerican Barrier Reef. And this mm. is in the Caribbean Sea. It starts up at the northern end of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico and continues down to the Bay Islands in Honduras. So it's also a pretty large oh, wow. reef system, but it doesn't get as much notoriety as the Great Barrier Reef does. Have you visited it? I have. That is where um, I do my work. I work in Rotan, Honduras. So. 
Amazing. Right at the bottom edge of that Mesoamerican barrier reef. That's, That's very really cool. cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the third type of reef we'll talk about, this is the last one to talk about. There are more types, um, but these are the, the big the big three, um, are atolls. So these are kind of mm. those like um, animated cartoon movie reef. That's what it looks like. It's that circular <laughs> reef that forms around a central lagoon. Um, and these happen because they start out as fringing reefs around some volcanic island. And then as the island erodes away, the corals continue to build up the reef so that the reef is left even though the island is gone. Um, oh. And so that's how you get that ring. Interesting. I had yeah. no idea. So over the course of a lot of a lot of time, yes. the island like erodes away, but the coral reef builds up so that yeah. you get like like the like the shadow, like the weird ghosty shadow of the previous island. I had yes, no idea. Exactly. Yeah, and that's, that's why really it's so cool. important to have living coral on your reefs. Like people like sometimes say, well, it doesn't matter if the coral's dying because the reef is already there, hmm. but things erode in the water. Water's very powerful and it will break <laughs> mm-hmm. down those structures really quickly. So it's important to have living coral because they continue to build to compensate for that erosion. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how you get atolls. Um, good trivia about atolls, a little fun fact here. They're very common in the South and Western Pacific. You know, all of like the little islands in Polynesia, all of that. <laughs> Most of those are atolls. There are only four atolls in the Western Hemisphere. Three oh. of them are in Belize and one of them is in Mexico. So very few um, over Whoa. here in the West. That's interesting. Only four? Mm-hmm. I wonder why that is. Is it just like like our geologic structure on this side or? Okay. Yes, primarily. That is a complicated Oceanographic question. Oh, I'm not yeah. an oceanographer, but, but <laughs> yeah, no worries on that, those lines. <laughs> Unpack that for us. Oh no, this is like my my oral exam. Jk, so, no. Jk. No, um, no, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. So that's a great question, though. I would love to know the answer to that Thanks. question. <laughs> so, where in the world do we find coral reefs? Um, corals are very much limited by the environmental conditions that they can live in. Okay. Um, they're very picky about lots mm. of different things. They need warm, shallow waters. We're talking. 80 degrees Fahrenheit with very little um, variation. They wow. live only between zero and about 160 feet below sea level. Um, so that's in the grand scheme of things in terms of the actual size of the ocean, not very deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they're very picky about the light that they need. They need a lot of light, but not too much light. Um, they like to live in clear water, low nutrient waters, um, and they have very specific ranges for both salinity and pH, about 35 parts per thousand and about 8.2 pH. So they're super picky. Super high maintenance. Yes, they (laughs) They are. They do. One of my jobs one year in the lab was to take care of the corals in our aquaria, and that was I'm so grateful for this experience, but it was the worst. (laughs) Like trying to (laughs) deal with all of the like taking the little corals and individually brushing them with a toothbrush so that they wouldn't get too much algae on them. Like they're so high maintenance. That is the perfect oh way God, to describe gosh. it. So, they're awesome, but they are divas. Um, yeah. And so in addition to all these environmental factors, it's also about the geology of the system. As Lauren was pointing out earlier, they need areas with the right kind of substrate to attach mm. to, um, as we were talking about earlier with substrates. So because of this, they are found only in coastal areas between 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south on the globe, those warm tropical waters. Um, they tend to form on the western sides of ocean basins and the eastern sides of continents. So think about like the Caribbean Sea, Australia, Southeast Asia. Like all on the Western Pacific, Western Atlantic. We don't, it's very rare to find them on the Eastern edges of ocean basins because of strong, uh, the way that the ocean is circulating, we get strong coastal currents on the Eastern sides of the basins. And we also get something called upwelling, which is where the water from the 
deep part of the ocean is coming up along the coast. And we're actually getting this really cold, really nutrient rich Mm. water along the coast. And so that's really great for fish productivity, for example. Think about Peru, think about Mm -hmm. California. These are areas with really um, high upwelling. And corals hate this. They don't like the cold. They don't like the nutrients. So it's not a good coral zone. Um, So that's why we find them on the west side of the ocean instead of the east side of the ocean. The upwelling? Sorry. <laughs> the upwelling, just the <laughs> description of... It's like an apocalyptic series. <laughs> it's just... Like, when you say it's upwelling up up the continent, it just makes me feel how deep it is. It's so deep, Jordan. <laughs> like, like, I was... You were describing that, and I was imagining it, and I was like... <gasps> <laughs> desperately gasping for air. Like You just need to pretend, pretend you're a fish. It's <sighs> like bringing all the krill and all the nutrients, things num, that num. no one has touched in so long. Like, yeah. mm, yummy. Great. So. so cool to think about it in those terms. Like, yes. yeah, exactly. Like I'm, like what you've mentioned so far, exactly. Like the Caribbean and, and Australia mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. It, it is. It's all on the east side of those places. That's, That's crazy. So wild. Cool. Um, yeah. So in addition to this, they also um, – Reefs are very rare in like South Asia, for example, and Mm. Eastern South America, for example, because of high freshwater output from the Ganges River, from the Amazon Mm. River, because again, it messes with the salinity. Corals don't like that. It's very turbid. We get a lot of like sediment coming out of those rivers. So that impacts light. The corals can actually get buried in that sediment. Unhappy corals. Um, It's also high nutrient input. We get lots of nutrients like um, fertilizers and things being flushed out into those areas. And again, corals don't like those nutrients. So those types of areas don't have coral reefs. Um, but of course, as there isn't anything with science, there are exceptions to these rules. Um, so a good example of this, um, in the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf, we actually have very beautiful, thriving coral communities, despite extreme ranges in temperature from 55 degrees Fahrenheit to 100 degrees Fahrenheit across the whole year, and really high salinity at 40 parts per thousand, which is about five parts per thousand more than it corals usually range at, and that's oh. quite a bit. Um, yeah. So, of course, life finds a way. There are corals in all the places I said that you don't usually find corals, mm-hmm. but for the most part, those are the general trends. Wow. Um, some good things to know about where corals are distributed. The most northern tropical reef system in the world is found in Bermuda, and this is um, possible because of the warm waters of the Gulf Stream. So in the United States, we have this really strong um coastal current called the Gulf Stream that takes these warm waters from the equator and brings them up farther more north than they should be. Um, so they that allows these corals to live in this area, despite everywhere else along that same latitude being more cold. Um, and then the most southern reef in the world is found at Lord Howe Island off the east coast of Australia. Mm. Um, and so all in all, tropical coral reefs make up about 0.1% of the Earth's surface, or a tenth of a percent, um, but they house an estimated 25% of all marine life. So Whoa. a quarter, wow. a whole quarter of the things that live in the ocean are found at some point in their life cycle on coral reefs, um, which is just another reason why they're so amazing, so Jeez. important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. So this transitions us into our second part of the podcast, what actually lives on these reefs. Um, here, I'm going to talk through kind of the biodiversity that we find on reefs. And that's a term that I use very frequently that we in ecology use very frequently. It's, it refers to the number of species, the diversity of species. It kind of incorporates all of those into one word, biodiversity. So if you hear me saying that, that's what that means. Um, I, I'm going to talk about taxonomy in this section. I promise to keep it to a minimum, but I want to kind of go through those classifications really quickly to make sure everyone's on the same page. Um, these are basically the buckets that taxonomists put different organisms to, into in order to group them together by their similar characteristics and to build mm-hmm. the tree of life as we know it. So the yep. biggest one, 
Moving from biggest to smallest, we have kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. Um, And I have, okay, if my advisor is listening to this podcast, I hope you're not. Hi, Jen, if you are. Um, (laughs) Don't listen to this next part, but I get really confused about what order these go in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I have a, the mnemonic I was always taught was uh, King Philip came over from Great Spain to remember the order of those um, categories. There are several other very common mnemonics that you might hear, but that's the one that I know. Um, So no shame if you can't remember the order. Yeah, I think I learned like, Kanye come over for good sex or something like that. <laughs> yes, there are many um, more lewd versions of that. <laughs> I believe it. That See, are available. I was trying to Google and like find some other examples and I was like, mm, maybe not. Maybe I won't share these. <laughs> yeah. Um, the only way I remember it is because my sixth grade teacher, literally the only thing that I remember from sixth grade was she got us all into a chant, which was kingdom phylum class order family genus species and we did that for what felt like i mean i was 12 a half an hour so that was like deeply embedded into my like frontal cortex sounds and effective. so yeah so anytime I mean, I, anybody starts yeah. to clap like this you just snap right into it i just like snap like like i've been at like <laughs> activated <laughs> activated to mem- to like recite the kingdom phylum class order family genus species oh no now my classmates are gonna see me sitting at my desk like clapping <laughs> clapping, <laughs> clapping like thinking to myself <laughs> during a test oh just like yeah <laughs> so uh moving on we have our types of organisms and i'm just going to preface this by saying it's impossible to touch on every single organism that lives on the reef there are way too many of them i don't know every single one of them i'm not an expert in coral reef taxonomy i'm an expert in corals but <laughs> i'm going to try my best um, and cover some of the big ones so number one of course first the coral reef fish mm-hmm. um these are the fish that live in above and amongst the corals um they're typically very colorful i think they're very adorable yeah. Um, and I think they're special because they're very diverse in terms of their taxonomy. So the way that they're related to one another, um, their ecology, which is how they behave. So whether they come out during the day or at night, whether they're herbivores or um, carnivores, whether they um, live in a group or whether they live solitary, mm-hmm. there's many different um, patterns you can find across these fish, even though they're all in the same class, um, mm-hmm. taxonomic class. And then a physical appearance, obviously, as well. We have a wide range. Some are colorful, some are dull, some are really big, some are really small. So even though they're all fish, they look and act very different. Mm -hmm. Um, We know a lot about fish just in general. That's something we're familiar with as people. Um, So I'm going to keep going. But we have sharks and rays, um, which I think is important to point out because these are actually in the same class. They are closely related cousins. Um, and they're the cartilaginous fish, which means that their skeleton is made of cartilage instead of bone. Um, their class Latin name is called chondrichthys. And the way you can remember this is because the chondra part is cartilaginous and the ichthys part is fish. Um, and this is a contrast to the bony fish, which are the fish you normally think of when you think about fish, Mm -hmm. which are osteichthys. So osteo being bone Bone. and ichthys being fish. Um, but they're closely related classes. Um, and the interesting thing about sharks and rays, I think, is the huge range, ranges of size in this class. Um, the smallest member of this group is only four inches long, the finless sleeper ray, versus the whale shark, which is 32 feet long and is the largest oh, yeah. member of the group. So class is a small group, um, but there's huge diversity in it. Um, moving on, we're now going to get into the invertebrates. Um, this is where I 
really feel at home. Invertebrate <laughs> ecology is my love. If it has a backbone, I'm like, eh. But if it doesn't have a backbone, I'm really interested. You're so, into it. Yeah, that is you want my that, thing. You want that wiggly Give me that weirdness. Wiggle. That, that, yes. that goosh. <laughs> Yes, they're so strange. They're so alien. They're so interesting. It's just, it's fascinating to me. So I'm really in love with the marine invertebrates in particular. So our Mm -hmm. first group are the echinoderms. And these are some of my favorites. Um, Their name comes from uh, the word spiny and skin. Mm -hmm. So they're characterized by their spiny skin and usually their radial symmetry. So this includes things like starfish, your brittle stars, your sea urchins, um, sand dollars, and sea cucumbers. Um, and these are all organisms that live on the seafloor. So this is called the benthos. So if you hear someone referring to a benthic organism, or if you hear me talking about the benthos, that is the bottom of the ocean. Um, and that's not just strictly related to coral reefs. There's a benthos everywhere in the ocean. But um, these are organisms that live in the benthos. And they live throughout the ocean, not just on coral reefs. Um, something interesting about echinoderms, they're actually the largest phylum on Earth with no terrestrial or freshwater members. So they only live Whoa. in the ocean. Yeah, and there's Very about 7,000 species of them. So... Lots and lots and lots of squishy guys. Squishy dudes. <laughs> squishy dudes. <laughs> the next group are the mollusks. And this is a just completely massive group with super high diversity. So I'm going to do my best yeah. not to go down the rabbit hole here. There are about 85,000 known species. Um, and this is thought to be a major underestimate because they're hard to characterize. They're hard to find. Mm. Not a lot of people study mollusks in the grand scheme of things. So... We think that this is a major underestimate of their actual species diversity. This is the largest marine phylum by far, um, with about 23% of all of the marine species that exist belonging to the phylum mollusca. So almost a quarter of everything that lives in the ocean is a mollusk. Um, Oh, they're like the beetles of the ocean. Yes, exactly. Very much. (laughs) There are several... You and Nina should get together and talk about how many I don't think I've gotten to Nina's episode yet. I don't oh, know. yeah. No, it's very good. You'll oh. like it because it's it's like Gucci boys. Like, like. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> she talks about charismatic insects, too, which is funny that, I, that Jordan said that word, too. I was like, we're learning so many words from biologists. <laughs> <laughs> we love charismatic invertebrates. They're wonderful. Yeah. We want people to get excited about the things that they don't usually get excited about. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, within mollusks, we have three major classes. Well, there's lots of lots of classes, but we're going to talk about three of them that I think are really important. Uh, first is the cephalopods. These are your octopus, your squids, your cuttlefish. Um, and the word cephalopods means head, foot. So the way I like to remember <laughs> this is like, they're literally just like a brain attached to some tentacles. And so it's like just a head and just a foot. So that's how I remember that. Um, the gastropods, which are your slugs and your snails. Um, there are many, many different types of these. I'm not even going to attempt to list them, but anything you can think of in the ocean that has one of those like conical shells mm-hmm. is a gastropod. Um, and also one of my favorite examples of this are the nudibranchs. These are those adorable little sea slugs. Um, they are, oh, yeah. I don't know if you've seen them. They're super cute. They're really little. They're very colorful. Um, they're often called sea bunnies because they have like two little antenna uh, on yes. the front and like yeah, a little like, like bushy thing on their like at the back. So they actually look like a little rabbit. They're so adorable. If you have not seen them, please look them up. Um, I love nudibranchs. <laughs> I've never seen one in real life. And I, I'm just, when I'm out on the reef, I'm like eyes out looking for nudibranchs. I want to see one so bad. Um, so these are from gastropods and this means stomach foot. And the way, the reason yeah, why I was this is ask. called, yeah, if you're thinking about like a snail, for example, that the big flat part on their bottom is called their foot. Um, and most gastropods have this. And so because they're moving along on what we would call their stomach, but it's actually their foot, they're gastropods. So they have Mm. a foot for a stomach. 
is how <laughs> I think about it. Um, and then the last class of mollusks that I'm going to talk about are the bivalves, um, which you might be more familiar with. These are the ones that have two shells connected with a hinge. Um, so things mm-hmm. like your clams and your scallops, which are found on reefs. And then others include like oysters and mollusks, but those are not found on reefs typically. This is a little comforting that like 25, like almost a quarter of marine life are mollusks because I'm not afraid of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like they're just little guys. They're like, like chomping along. Like I'm imagining like an, like a clam just like sitting there, like opening and closing its shell. Like, yeah. Yeah, minding his own business. It's doing Yeah, fine. exactly. They don't bother yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> so, good. Yes, positive, positive associations with the ocean. <laughs> um, our there. next... Our next group is something that I could talk about for all day. This is something I love so much, but people do not love. So I'm not going to go too much into it. But algae. Algae mm-hmm. is so important on the reef. Um, it's very and it is important. Impossible. Yeah. Yes. And they serve so many different functions. And I think that's what excites me so much about algae is like, there's so many different things that these algae can do um, and the forms that they take. And I think it's really exciting to try to explore that. Mm-hmm. And so that is really what draws me to algae, um, even though it's not something that like, like a little kid, like, oh, my favorite thing is algae. Like, no one says that, but <laughs> I am a big nerd. Big nerd for algae. So Hey, you know, uh, you're in good company. Don't even worry about it. Yes, that is why I asked to come on this podcast. <laughs> you guys would appreciate the algae nerdiness. Absolutely. <laughs> so it is impossible to describe the full diversity of algae found on the reef. Um, so I'm not going to, but... <laughs> They're often left out of the discussion of coral reefs because they aren't animals. People don't think about them, but they f- have many different functions as we were just talking about. Um, so things like seaweed is a big one. That's like what you would typically think of as algae, but there's also yeah. um, types of algae called calcareous algae, which also produce calcium carbonate, just like the corals oh. do. So they actually will contribute to the reef structure. They will um, help to make sand uh, for our beaches. Um, yeah, so calcareous algae is very diverse and very important on the reef. Um, we have turf algaes, which are some of my favorites. These are really thin films of algae that cover just about anything that does not have something else living there on the reef is coated with this turf algae. Um, and I love it in particular because it um, is food for many herbivorous organisms, including mm. um, some of your reef fish, like butterfly fish and damselfish in particular. So damselfish are very well known for gardening this turf algae they will actually like find a little plot that they will defend and take care of they like put out their little borders and they pick off all the parasites and they eat this um but it's a symbiotic relationship they take care of the turf algae and then they eat the turf algae in um exchange for that um however damselfish will defend their little gardens very very aggressively and this is (laughs) kind of they're kind of infamous in the coral scientist world because as you're out there scuba diving and working on your experiments or collecting samples or whatever you're doing if you come near one of these little damselfish gardens they will come at you and they (laughs) are not shy so there's actually i have a project um that i'm running in roatan right now and whenever I go out there to work on it, there is one damselfish who lives underneath this platform that I'm working on. And he will come out and he will nip at my fingers and mess around with me. And I've named him Roger after my <laughs> grandfather, who was very crotchety. I'm like, get off my lawn. Type. So like, <laughs> that is what I imagine these little damselfish doing. So I love damselfish. Oh and my I, love, gosh. Um, I love their interactions with this turf algae. So they literally say, get off my lawn. This yeah, is my lawn. Will, yes, exactly. They're like crotchety <laughs> old men. Um, I love it. Like shaking their finger at their children. (laughs) Um, Other things that live on the reef, um, 
major players include things like crustaceans or lobsters, crabs, and shrimps, among other things. Um, your sea reptiles, so sea snakes and sea turtles, of course, mm. um, sponges, and then the annelids, which is another really big um, phylum, which are your worms. So we have things like feather duster worms, Christmas tree worms, fire worms. These are things that typically filter feed um, stuff out of the water. They gave them such pretty names. Yeah. Just so you weren't thinking about what they really are. <laughs> well, the ocean worms are actually very beautiful. If you get the chance, I recommend looking up Christmas tree worms. They're super cute. They look actually like two. So each individual worm has two little antennae-like things. They live inside the benthos, so usually in corals, mm-hmm. but any kind of rock they can kind of bore into. And they have two little antennae that stick up out of the rock, and they actually look like a pair of little Christmas trees. <laughs> but they're very colorful. They come in all kinds of colors, yellow, blue, red. Um, and if you come and wave next to them, they like, <gasps> suck up into their little hole, then they come back out again. They're really cute. So the, They the are marine, very cute. The marine I'm looking at them right now. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, they're adorable. I'm looking at them. They're so beautiful. Yeah, they have patterns, and they're not very Mm -hmm. big, so they're not very intimidating. They're really lovely. Christmas tree worms are the best. (laughs) Yeah, I love them. They're very pretty. So overall, the Pacific Ocean tends to, um, not tends to, it has more diversity than the Atlantic Ocean by about tenfold. So in the Atlantic, we have about 65 species of stony corals. In the Pacific, there are about 650 species. Um, In terms of coral reef fish, in the Atlantic, we have about 700 species. And in the Pacific, there are about 7,000 species. So there's Mm. way more species diversity in the Pacific than the Atlantic. And there's a couple of reasons for this. First of all, the Pacific is much bigger than the Atlantic Mm -hmm. Ocean, Um, especially in coral reef biology. When we talk about the Pacific, we refer to a region of the Indo-Pacific. So this includes like the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, Mm -hmm. the entire Pacific. So it's a really big Big. region. Mm -hmm. So that's reason number one. There's a lot more space. So there's a lot more species. Mm-hmm. Um, second of all, the Pacific Ocean is much older than the Atlantic Ocean. Because of the way the tectonic plates are moving, um, the Pacific Ocean is significantly older than the Atlantic Ocean. They've had more time to develop these diverse species. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, um, the Pacific Ocean has a region called the Coral Triangle. Um, and this is a roughly triangular shape that connects kind of the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Papua New Guinea, that area, mm-hmm. um, that is super, super diverse. It's one of the most diverse regions on the entire planet. Um, And it acts as a refugia during ice ages. So this is one of the few places on Earth where the climate is consistent enough. And during these ice age times, it doesn't get cold enough to impact these species. So they are able to live through the ice ages. While other places in the world, like the Atlantic, for example, the corals will actually die out and those other species will die out and have to repopulate. And so because of this, those organisms have been evolving for a lot longer they haven't had to do the extra work to repopulate every time they can just keep evolving and keep changing keep diversifying while in the atlantic ocean they have to like keep starting over again yeah yeah you know what um, now you're making me think about time and how time is so long (laughs) that's always so difficult like as so my undergrad degree is in ecology and evolutionary biology and it's so tough because ecology tends to work on time scales of like years to maybe decades mm-hmm. and then evolution mm-hmm. is like let's talk millions of years hundreds of millions of years like oh and so it's so funny the different time scales yeah coral reefs um as we know them have been around for about 25 million years um and in that time there's been so many extreme climatic changes like just natural variations yeah. in the earth's climate um in addition to geological processes which are e- on an even longer time scale than evolution um but those things have been changing over the last 25 million years too so all of these things are working together. All these historical yeah. things are working together to impact the way that we have coral reefs today. Um, yeah. 
So that is why the Pacific is so much more diverse. We are now going to get into the little micro section of this um, podcast. So the ocean is not just the things you can see. So far, everything we've talked about um, has been what we call a macro organism, Mm -hmm. something you can see with your own eyeballs. But the ocean is absolutely teeming with microbial life. Um, Mm. You guys are going to hate this, but in the lab that I worked in (laughs) as an undergrad, we used to refer to it as swimming in a microbial soup. So like literally just like butterfly kicking your way through microbes. Mm -hmm. Um, In every liter of seawater, there's an estimated 1 billion with a B bacteria and 10 billion viruses. (gasps) <gasps> and this this number does not even include things like fungi, archaea, protists, and microscopic animals. So there's so much going on in the water that we don't even think about um, in every milliliter of the water. And um, above the reef, within the reef, all of that area. And all of these things are eating, they're excreting, they're reproducing, they're fighting one another. And these processes have effects on the macroscopic world. And so that is really what I study as a microbial ecologist how these things might be interacting and affecting our larger world. Amazing. Yeah. So you guys might be familiar with the concept of the human microbiome. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we have bacteria and other things that live inside of us, help us out. They help us to digest. They give us antimicrobial properties where we can fight off infection, those kinds of things. But most organisms do have some type of microbiome and corals are not an exception to this. They have an incredibly complex and diverse set of microbes that live in and on them. Um, And this is specifically what I study. So corals have bacteria, fungi, viruses, and algae living inside their skeletons, inside their tissue, and on the outer mucus layer that they secrete. Um, And then these microbes can actually have more microbes inside of them. So for example, one of the things that I've worked on in the past is a virus that lives inside an algae that lives inside a coral. So it's kind of like... (laughs) A turducken. It's a real turducken. Yeah. I was going to call it like a Russian nesting doll, but that is another really great analogy. (laughs) I mean, tomato, tomato, you know? Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. And this whole collection of corals and their microbes together is known as the coral holobiont. Um, And that's a really important part of the coral's ecology. So it's something that's very commonly studied in coral reef biology. Wow. Um, One of the most important and well-studied microbes that the corals have is a single-celled type of algae called Symbiodineaceae. So we're coming back. This is another type of algae that I love so much. Um, This name is super long. I will not call it that every time because it's annoying to me. Um, (laughs) So I will call it just algae from now on. But this algae lives inside the coral tissue. So instead of living like as a film on the outside of the coral, it's actually engulfed into the cells of the coral itself. Um, And so it's called an endosymbiont. It lives within the tissues. Mm. Um, This algae is actually what gives the coral its color. So when we think about corals, we think about them being very colorful. Um, The algae is green brown as algaes are. um, And the coral is actually just a very thin layer of clear tissue over a white skeleton. Um, So the corals themselves are completely transparent. the algae is what you're seeing when you look at a coral. Is the color of the algae. Whoa. Uh, yeah. And this is important for something we'll talk about later in the okay. podcast. So keep that in your brain. <gasps> okay. um, this relationship is symbiotic, which means that both partners benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, the coral provides the symbiont, the algae, with a place to live and different important nutrients. And then the algae gives the coral food. So the algae um, is a plant. So it photosynthesizes and it donates some of that food to the coral. And that is really the foundation of how corals live. They cannot live without their algae. So moving into part three, why do reefs matter? 
Um, in addition to being beautiful, reefs provide many different functions um, to humans and to the biological sphere that we refer to as ecosystem services. Um, so a couple of these ecosystem services, first of all, they are hotspots of biodiversity. I've talked about this at length um, already, so you, you know what this means, but um, more biodiverse ecosystems tend to be healthier ecosystems. Yeah. So the mm-hmm. ability for corals to support this level of biodiversity is one of the reasons why this ecosystem is so important, so healthy. Yeah. Um, additionally, corals are an amazing, uh, corals and coral reefs, the the things that they support are major food sources Mm -hmm. and fish and other things from the reef are the primary source of food for about half a billion people worldwide. So it's not like a small thing. That is a really major portion of the humans on this earth. Um, Coral reefs also provide coastal protection. So that reef structure we talked about um, takes the brunt of the force of wave action just regularly, but also during storms, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And this actually protects the coastline from erosion, um, from property damage, and even from loss of human life. So imagine especially like um, in the South Pacific, where you have lots of those really low-lying islands that are not very, Mm -hmm. they don't have very much elevation change. Um, The reefs are really important to protecting those from big waves um, during storms and even just normal day-to-day waves that happen. Yeah. Um, Another one is ecotourism. People love reefs. Um, So (laughs) people travel and spend lots of money to go look at these reefs and uh, spend time on these reefs. And this ecotourism drives the economy of many coastal communities and even entire nations. And so that's a big um, ecosystem service that corals will provide. And then finally, corals have immense cultural value. Mm. Uh, Just about anyone who lives anywhere near a reef, the reef is really important to them, not only for these services that it provides, as I talked about before, but just because it's it's important to -to day-to-day life. It's just a part of who you are and who your culture is. And this is particularly true in indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. Um, And with this, I just wanted to um, have a little disclaimer that all of my connection with the reef is very much from a Western academic view of knowledge, but indigenous communities hold so much traditional knowledge about reefs that I cannot talk about and I'm not intending to talk um, for them. So just be aware that there are so much more about coral reefs that is um, important than what I am just talking about today. Mm -hmm. um, Because the reefs are just part of this indigenous communities and who they are fundamentally as a culture. So reefs are very important. Um, And I don't want to bring down the vibe too much, but I would be remiss to not talk about... um, some of the dangers that modern reefs are facing mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. due to climate change and environmental change. Um, as I talked about before, corals are very sensitive to their environment. They are divas and very high maintenance. Um, mm-hmm. So they're really easily affected by things like pollution, bad water quality, sea surface temperature change, and disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and these risks to the reef threaten not only the ecosystem and the organisms that live there, but the people that depend upon them. Yeah. Um, and so this topic really kind of highlights the importance of studying the reefs as well as conserving the coral reefs that we have. Yeah. Um, so one of the major issues that reefs are facing is something called coral bleaching. Is this something that you guys are familiar with? Yes, oh. I think I've heard of this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is something, yeah, I'm glad that you've heard of this. This is something I feel that coral scientists are finally starting to do a better job of engaging the general public about and kind of getting mm-hmm. the word out about helping people understand what this is. Um, I am running more and more into people who are at least vaguely familiar with the term bleaching. Um, and basically what this means, what bleaching is, is when um, is something that happens when corals experience large amounts of prolonged stress. So it's kind of a chronic stress condition. Um Though that's not always true, it can happen because of acute stress. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm hedging my bets and 
being a little bit careful in case someone scientific who knows a lot more than I do comes and listens to this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's um, it's understood that you're you know you're hitting the high notes on yeah. on this stuff and and kind of like bringing this down to the to a layman. So you know, yes. I, yeah. So no one's gonna attack you at a conference over this. Yeah, no one's gonna be like, oh, I heard you on misinformation. Some of these coral scientists are cutthroat, I'll tell you that. Uh, so yeah. I feel like overall there's a very like warm and welcoming community, but some of them can be really intense. So Yeah, that's academia. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So just being careful here. Usually prolonged stress, but not always. Um, and it's usually when, uh, because of temperature stress due to mm. rising ocean temperatures. Yeah. But again, not always. Any kind of stress can cause bleaching. Um, and what happens in this process is the corals will actually spit out those symbiotic algae that I was telling you about um, because of a breakdown in the relationship. So instead mm. of becoming, instead of being a symbiotic relationship, it turns more towards a parasitic relationship. Uh, and oh, wow. neither partner is happy. We actually don't know whether the corals get rid of the algae or the algae says sayonara. But for some reason, the, cor- the coral and the algae break up, the algae leaves, um, and this makes the corals turn bright white because you can see their skeleton through their skin. Oh, okay. so that's why I was talking about that earlier. So you might've seen pictures of this. Um, this is kind of a mm. very iconic picture of reef where you see like the whole reefscape, everything is literally stark, crisp white. Yeah. It's almost beautiful, but very haunting. Oh. That's what that is. It's coral bleaching. Um, and this is why they call it bleaching is because it turns white. Um, mm. And unfortunately, without the algae, the coral will actually starve to death um, because <gasps> the algae is providing most of the food that the coral needs. Um, so without that algae, they will die. However, corals can recover from bleaching as long as whatever's causing the stress goes away. So if mm. before they die, the stress goes away, the temperature goes back down, you know, they get a little cold front or whatever, the corals will slurp those algae back up and go back to normal. So I don't want to sugarcoat anything that doesn't happen often, that doesn't happen all the time, but it is possible. So there mm-hmm. is hope here. Um, and because of this, like working in coral biology can be really hard sometimes. It can be very yeah. depressing. Um, because it's sad to watch these beautiful mm-hmm. ecosystems dying, but I try to stay really positive. I try to stay really hopeful, um, for the future of the reefs. Um, and I personally think that the future of the reef very much, re- um, lies in our collective responsibility to mitigate climate change and to be better stewards for our environment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think people are starting to become more aware of this, um, but my responsibility as a coral scientist is to continue sharing my knowledge, continue sharing my love for coral reefs um, to pretty much anyone who will listen. Um, so I really appreciate y'all having me on the podcast today so that I can spread around this love and awareness of coral reefs. So thank you. That is my topic. I know oh we gosh. joke. I know we joke about it that we're like, oh my God, I learned so much. But like, holy crap, I learned no, we so really did. much. <laughs> well, we I'm really so learned- glad. That was my goal. Um, I like to be, I try to be uh, an effective science communicator. So that means a lot to me that you guys say And that. that's really, Absolutely. that's hard to do, you know? Yeah. We've sat through it's, some talks. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Jordan, we've sat through some talks, okay? <laughs> but that was wonderful. I have, oh, I'm so I have, glad. A, I do have a couple of questions. Yes, please. One is from my husband, but I'm going to start, <laughs> I'm going to start with the, I'm going to start sad and I'm going to end happy. Okay. So, Great. That's always a good way to go. Yeah. Um, we're going to end on a high note. So my first question is, I was on Twitter, always a cesspool. I don't know why I do it. And there was some like, you know, prompt tweet of someone like, what is something that you know from your, you know, your occupation that the rest of us don't know and is really important. And one guy was like, I study coral reefs and we're, uh, turns out we're screwed. We're all screwed. We're all going to die. Uh, and everyone was like, really? And what? he was like, yep, Sorry. We're all dead in 25 years. And that was like... And then he walked and away. And then he was like, gone. <laughs> like, like it never Into responded again. 
So my question for you, Jordan, is: Are we screwed? <laughs> was this gentleman? This, was this gentleman? Was he a time a little... traveler? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, there are different camps on this, so I'm going to be careful okay. to appease everybody and try to give a balanced viewpoint. Please. Um, coral reefs are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. mortal danger for coral reefs. Climate change is a problem. It is a real problem, and we need to get it under control if yeah. we want corals to exist as we know them into the future. Um, it's likely that coral species individual coral species will go extinct. There's already some, um, a couple of species that are functionally extinct in the Caribbean, at least, um, that we're Mm. trying to bring into Aquaria so that we can at least save them. And maybe once we have better restoration practices, put them back out on the reef and maybe try to repopulate with them. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's very likely that individual coral species will go extinct. It's unlikely that every coral will go extinct. Mm. Um, There are some hardier corals. They're known as weedy corals. They're kind of assholes sometimes, but... (laughs) But they're going to survive, and we appreciate that. (laughs) Assholes are always the ones that survive. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, uh, the the idea that a coral reef, as we know it today, is this hot spot of biodiversity, this very um, three-dimensional structure that um, can support all this life is probably not going to continue if Mm -hmm. we don't do anything about climate change because these asshole corals, the ones that survive, are typically not what we call reef-building corals. They're not really big. They don't build like huge structures that fish can live inside of and things like that. Mm. They're just kind of like dinner plate sized colonies Mm. that are spread out across the reef. Um, And so because of that, we are going to see without mitigation of climate change, we are going to see big changes to the reef and the reef structure and the, and the fish and organisms and everything that lives on the reef will likely also experience these population changes. It's impossible to predict what that's going to look like. Um, It will certainly cause big problems for many people. So as I said, a half a billion people depend on coral reefs for food. So what are they going to do when that's no longer an issue? And I think that is really where we get into the policy side of things. How are we going to support people as these transitions happen? How are we going to make sure that they can still um, have a livelihood that is worth living? Um, how can we still take care of them? Um, so that is actually my um, PhD is in environmental science and policy. And that's exactly why. That's something I'm really interested in. Um, So that's kind of the more sober side of it. Um, There's also a camp of people that believe that this isn't the right way to approach talking about coral reefs because it Mm. has a very, um, the dramatic nature of it makes people feel like they can't do anything. Like it's Mm -hmm. kind of inevitable and like all hope is lost. And that is absolutely not true. There are things that we can do to protect reefs at a local scale um, that can help buffer them to climate change to give us more time to sort out our bigger problems. Um, And there are Um, practices that are going on right now. Um, Coral restoration is something that is a big field of research, a very active field of research a lot of money is going into to see, okay, these coral reefs have died. Can we rebuild them in order to support the life that they had before? Even if they look different, can we support the same processes? Those kinds of questions. Mm. Um, So I think there are definitely people out there who have a more positive take on it, who think um, that, yes, things are definitely going to change. There's no question about that, but we might be able to do something about Mm it. Um, and there is some hope there. So I don't like, it's not my approach to go at it like this person did on Twitter. I don't like to say, it's all over, give up, like, yeah. we're all dead. Because um, I don't think that's true. And I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it's productive. Yeah. But it is definitely like, it is a problem. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's a serious thing, but it's not. Um, but you shouldn't take it so like, well, this is so serious, we might as well just lay in the street kind of thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, great, wonderful, thank you. Sorry, that, that was a me... long answer. That was really no, long no, no, <laughs> fantastic. It's it's perfect. It's fantastic. My second question is, and Steve, my husband, who who has a PhD and works with students a lot, he was like. Um, he was like, if you get a chance, you know, could you ask her? Cause he loves asking questions of PhD students. And his favorite question to ask is what is probably the coolest or most interesting thing that you've kind of discovered about your field as you've been working at, on your advanced degree? So like, what is something that you were like, wow, that's really interesting. Like, I want to know more. Or like, I didn't know that previously, like that kind of thing. Sure. So one of the things that I study that I'm just so excited about um, is biofilms on reefs. So bacteria have an interesting growth. Some bacteria have an interesting growth pattern where they will actually kind of stick together in clumps and form what is called a biofilm along the reef substrate, along the coral itself, along whatever they like. They're kind of slimy, but they're like plaques of bacteria. Um, And these what I discovered. So what I think is super interesting to answer Steve's question specifically is (laughs) I learned about these things. I learned that the biofilms can actually have an impact on coral reef settlement. So coming back to what we were talking about earlier, the coral sex, the way that corals reproduce sexually, um, they'll either spit out eggs and sperm or larvae that have already been fused together out into the environment. This is called mass coral spawning. You might've heard of this. There's like very beautiful like videos of these corals, like, letting out all these like they're gently floating out all of these like <laughs> embryos essentially into the water it looks like snow it's so gorgeous oh my gosh. um it like covers everything and all the corals across the reef do this simultaneously so it's called mass coral oh, spawning cool um, so it all happens at once and but these settings have to settle somewhere and that is this process that i'm really interested in and it turns out bacteria can influence so there's something going on on the benthos of the reef either in bacteria within an algae or just the bacterial biofilms themselves that is telling the corals, hey, you should settle here or hey, you shouldn't settle here. And so that's what I'm trying to parse out with my PhD. And that's what I think is so cool. Just that how the way that the bacteria are living on the reef can affect the whole shape and structure of the reef. That's really cool. Yeah. Steve is going to love that. Steve's going to love that. Cool. Oh my gosh. Thank you for answering my questions. Julia, do you have any qu- other questions? I, I have hate to, too to like... many to ask. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send an email. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to monopolize your time. Thank you so much. That was so interesting. Oh my gosh. We knew it was going to be good, but I didn't realize that it was going to be this good. Um, thank you, Jordan. This was wonderful. Thank you, Jordan. Now, I have heard that you also, uh, on top of all of this, you have generously bestowed upon us a quiz as well. Yes, I do have a quiz. It does not have a witty title, but it's okay. Unfortunately, okay. but it is about captains. So here we go. Yep. Question one: The musical duo Captain and Tennille debuted their first hit single in 1975. The track was a cover of an earlier song by Neil Sedaka and Howard Greenfield, with a chord progression borrowed from the Beach Boys, and it went on to win the Grammy Award for Record of the Year. What is the title of this synthy bop? Question number two. On sports teams, the role of captain is often awarded to players who show leadership, skill, and sportsmanship. According to Wikipedia, the title is frequently honorary, but in some cases, the captain may have significant responsibility for strategy and teamwork while the game is in progress on the field. What other nautical term is sometimes used to refer to the captain of a soccer team? Question three. 
The mascot for the Quaker Oats Company, which produces the beloved Cap'n Crunch cereal, is a jolly man sporting some colonial attire. Though the company denies it, what notable Quaker who founded one of the 13 original U.S. colonies is rumored to have inspired this character? Question number four. This iconic granite cliff found in Yosemite National Park towers more than 3,000 feet above the valley floor, about 2.5 times as tall as the Empire State Building. Question number five. On June 11, 1770, during this British naval captain's first voyage, he and his crew nearly sank their ship after accidentally sailing over the stony corals of the Great Barrier Reef. Question number six. The epic 1991 adventure film Hook, directed by Steven Spielberg, tells the story of a grown-up Peter Pan, played by the late Robin Williams. Which actor portrays the titular character, Captain Hook? who kidnaps Peter's children and instigates a story with themes of nostalgia, loss of innocence, and the importance of family. Question number seven. Jules Verne, who brought to life the mysterious Captain Nemo, has been identified as the second most translated author, flanked on either side by which two English writers? Question number eight. The opening theme of the maritime comedy cartoon SpongeBob SquarePants has begun with the friendly Captain Painty the Pirate calling out, Are you ready, kids? Since the inception of the show. In what year, within one, did all the nautical nonsense premiere? Question number nine. The recipe for the original Captain Morgan spiced rum comes from which Caribbean country? And finally, question number 10. From Ultimate Comics, which comic book captain's immune system was strong enough to be able to fight off infection with vampirism when they were bitten? We'll give you all a minute to think about it and be back with your answers. This is a good quiz. I, I, I felt am loving I started, this. I started okay, out strong. I was so nervous. I was, like, I was like, I don't know if this is too easy. I it's don't know if this so is too hard. fun. I don't know if this is interesting, but there's a I'm lot of good stuff in here. Oh my there's, gosh! Yeah, a lot of good. And stuff. And we're gonna try our best. Yeah. Okay. All right. Lay it on us. Question one: The musical duo Captain and Tennille debuted their first hit single in 1975. What is the title of this synthy bop? I mean, it's got to be. Love. Love. <laughs> love will love keep, will us, keep together. us together. Oh my gosh. Yes, good. Yes. Love will Woo. keep us together. Um, I called my mom last night because I was like, I was Googling like, 
famous captains because I'm trying to come up with a couple <laughs> I do that too. Questions. I do that too. And it, this came up and I was like, oh, I know this song. They'll probably know this song, but I don't really know if this is like way too obscure. So I called my mom and I was like, I read the question to her and she started singing. And I was like, yeah. okay, great. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. We're good. We're good. <laughs> Uh, question number two on sports teams the role of captain is often awarded to players who show leadership skill and sportsmanship what other nautical term is sometimes used to refer to the captain of a soccer team do you know julia i know lauren was gonna lauren was gonna go "Ah, julia what did you write down lauren i wrote julia question mark (laughs) and then i wrote and then i wrote and then i wrote skipper which is probably not the case (laughs) um I feel like it's somewhere deep in the recesses of my mind, but I cannot. Yeah. I mean, you played soccer, didn't you? I did for a long time. And I enjoy watching soccer. And I don't know why I can't think of anything else that they're called besides a captain. Uh, yeah, let's go with Lauren's answer. Let's go with We're Skipper. We're going to go Skipper. Skipper. <laughs> it is Skipper, yes. Lauren, you did it. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's Skipper. Oh, my God. Okay. I love it. <laughs> Question number three. The mascot for the Quaker Oats Company, which produces the beloved Cap'n Crunch cereal, is a jolly man sporting some colonial attire. Though the company denies it, what notable Quaker who founded one of the 13 original U.S. colonies is rumored to have inspired this character? Do you know this, Lauren? I, I don't. I was going to defer to you and yeah, your American again, history Julia, degree. question mark. Um, I mm-hmm. think this has got to be William Penn. Yes, it is. Oh, of course. Um, so according to Quaker Oats, the mascot's real name is Larry. Stop <laughs> it. His name's Larry Quaker. He's actually, he's not actually a Quaker. He just dresses like that. <laughs> I love that. Um, question number four. This iconic granite cliff found in Yosemite National Park towers more than 3,000 feet above the valley floor, about 2.5 times as tall as the Empire State Building. Take it, Lauren. That's the El Capitan. Yes, El Capitan, which means the captain in Spanish. Um, The granite that makes up El Capitan and most of the features of Yosemite is about a million years old, and the cliff face was carved out by glacial action. So another geological process shaping the world around us. Did you watch the Free Solo documentary? I was just about to ask about that. No, what is this? So it's a guy that he's a free climber. A crazy man. Okay. And he's like, He's like, I'm going to climb El Capitan all at once by myself. And so no ropes and no pulleys and no crampons and none of the stuff that normal mountaineers use. He's just going to scale this sheer cliff, sheer granite cliff. In in sneakers and shorts and like a little tank top. (laughs) Is this allowed? Uh, I, apparently it's a lot it's called free climbing and they these these Colorado dudes like love it and all they do is just like he just brings a bag of chalk so that he can get like a good grip if he gets sweaty and the whole, like the last half of the documentary is like in pure and perfect silence a drone following him just like scaling this incredibly tall wall no it's no a nightmare it's it's no. very good to watch. It's a good documentary. Once. It sounds it's good. Very, I will really definitely cool watch it. But oh Especially I will like scuba dive, like, but I will not climb. Not a, <laughs> no. not really a spoiler. Like we know that he doesn't die. So that's like you know that's a great yeah. like it was it was up for an Oscar and he was there at the yeah. at the Academy yeah, yeah, yeah. Awards. Okay. So like okay, good. he didn't die. <laughs> he made it out. Yeah, but the whole time you're like, I mean, Steve and I had our fingers in our mouth, like screaming watching this documentary. <laughs> it's wild. It's oh so good. Great. I can't wait to torment my boyfriend with another documentary. <laughs> yeah, do it. 
Um, question number five. On June 11, 1770, during this British naval captain's first voyage, he and his crew nearly sank their ship after accidentally sailing over the stony corals of the Great Barrier Reef. I have a guess, Lauren. I do. Ha- I too have a guess. We're gonna say. Do you it, want to tell me? Count, count on three. Okay. We're gonna say our One, guesses. Two, one, three, three. Captain, Captain Cook. Cook. Yes, that <laughs> motherfucker, Captain Cook. <laughs> yeah. This question was inspired by the episode. I don't know the episode number. It's great. You should listen to it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, question number six: The epic nineteen ninety one adventure film Hook, directed by Steven Spielberg, tells the story of a grown up Peter Pan, played by the late Robin Williams. Which actor portrays the titular character, Captain Hook, who kidnaps Peter's children and instigates a story with themes of nostalgia, loss of innocence, and the importance of family? I hope you know this one, Lauren. I was going to say, I hope you know this one. No, no, I know who it is. I just can't remember his name. Who was uh, uh, that Seinfeld joke? Like, I bet you that so-and-so was in Star Wars. Dustin Hoffman was in Star Wars? (laughs) It's... Is it Dustin Hoffman? Is it Dustin Hoffman? It Dustin Hoffman? It is Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. That's what it is. See, I couldn't think of Dustin Hoffman's name, but I could think of that Seinfeld joke. And that's why Julie and I are so good at bar trivia, because we Google each other. <laughs> okay. Question seven. Jules Verne, who brought to life the mysterious Captain Nemo, has been identified as the second most translated author, flanked on either side by which two English writers? All right. English major Lauren. Um, I mean, that was a long time ago. Let me tell you. So I'm, I'm thinking Dickens is one of them. Dickens is definitely one. I'm, and then the other, that's a real toss up. I'm like Herman Melville. I'm thinking uh, Lord Byron. Oh, um, what about Mary Shelley? Hmm. Because. I mean, cause, like Dickens wrote a lot of stuff. Jules Verne sure. wrote a lot of stuff. Did Mary that's Shelley true, write a true. lot of stuff? I mean you know Frankenstein was a very popular um not Bram Stoker he just wrote I'm just thinking of like British Jane Austen ooh Jane Austen people love Jane Austen yeah you know what I like Austen I like that all right we'll say Charles Dickens and Jane Austen Actually, so number one is Agatha Christie. <gasps> oh, darn Why it. Why did I think of that? Darn Damn. It. Yeah. And we number three old. is Shakespeare. Oh, oh, we're so <laughs> We're so <stupid>. dumb. <laughs> we were going way too out there. I'm like, of course, I'm like Herman Melville. Like, who the hell reads Herman Melville? Every stupid. single person in China has their own copy of Moby Dick <laughs> translated into Chinese. It's really upgraded him to... <laughs> Yeah, it, it's like the most popular book out there. Come on. They're so we're gonna get so many emails. People are gonna be like, What was wrong you with idiots. you? Idiots. <laughs> you don't deserve to have a podcast. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we should have thought oh Agatha God. Christie. Yeah, we and definitely should have thought. Another <laughs> great thought episode of the podcast. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It was very good. <laughs> I love that one. okay this is off topic but I love that one in particular because I used to watch like the TV movie Agatha Christie mysteries with my grandmother because she was a huge Agatha oh, Christie yeah, fan yeah, so yeah. that was something that was a big part of my childhood so I especially love that episode yeah I'm I'm currently re-watching all of Poirot and I'm just it's just so cozy it's it's very comforting I so they have the new um Murder on the Nile movie that's yeah I think it's already come out and I remember seeing the advertisement for it. And when they first said his name, I was like, is this a sexy Agatha Christie movie? What? <laughs> like, I was so surprised. I, was like, I won't do it. David Suchet or no one. 
Okay, question number eight. The opening theme of the maritime comedy cartoon SpongeBob SquarePants has begun with the friendly Captain Painty the Pirate calling out, Are you ready, kids? Since the inception of the show. In what year within one did all the nautical nonsense premiere? So, okay, let's work this out. I think when SpongeBob SquarePants, Sir, the gentleman SquarePants, um, when he came out on television, I was like a little too old to watch mm-hmm. it, like to enjoy it as a child. So I'm thinking it was like around like 2001, 2002. And I'm thinking 1998. Ooh. Okay. So do you want to split the difference and say 99? 99? Yeah, I like that. Okay. 1999. Great job. Yeah. yeah. Good job. Um, and because he's part of the intro, Painty the Pirate is one of the few characters to appear in every episode of the show. Oh, about that. that. If if you count the intro as part of the show. Sure. Question number nine. The recipe for the original Captain Morgan spiced rum comes from which Caribbean country? I mean, I mean, the only thing I can think of is Bermuda, but I think it's because you said the word Bermuda oh. earlier in the episode. <laughs> like, I mean, I was thinking Jamaica, but. Ooh, Jamaica's pretty good, too. Jamaica's but I don't know. bigger, right? Jamaica's kind of big. I don't know. Jamaica's kind of big. It's kind of big. What do you want to go with? Uh, let's go with Jamaica. Because it's big, I guess. Yes, Jamaica. Yes. Yeah. Good job, Jewel. The company was founded in 1944 when the Seagram Company bought the Long Pond Distillery in Jamaica. And since then, the production location has moved around and today is located in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Sweet. Great. Okay, number 10. The question that came from my boyfriend and is a little bit out there. From Ultimate Comics, which comic book captain's immune system was strong enough to be able to fight off infection with vampirism when they were bitten? A captain who fights off vampirism? Was Wait, does that mean he's a vampire? No. No, he's not. He's not a vampire. He, okay. his, his immune system fought off the vampirism. Is this Blade isn't... a vampire? Blade's a Blade vampire. Blade is a vampire. Um... This this doesn't come from what what were the comics? Like I know Ultimate, Ultimate Comics. <laughs> Ultimate. Uh, I know. Yes. I'm like I'm like, oh yes, of course. <laughs> um I even wrote the word ultimate wrong like I spelled it wrong on my sheet. That's how little I know about it. Um All I can think of is the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and that Hmm. But the main guy is not I know he's like immortal. What is his name? Alan, Alan, fuck, Alan Quartermain. <gasps> Look at you! I know. I am. I am a huge comic book nerd. Secret <laughs> turns out, second season twist. Lauren is a huge comic book nerd. Um, Alan Quartermain. I don't think is a captain, but he is like an old school British like colonialist figure. Um. And he does live forever. I'm going to guess Alan Quartermain just due to the fact that I don't, I cannot think of a single and other. I support you a million percent for pulling that name out of, <laughs> out of the recesses of your brain. Okay. This was a little bit tricky, but it's actually Captain America. Um, really? What? Ultimate Comics is an imprint of Marvel Comics, but I thought it would be too oh, easy if I just said Marvel. So Yeah. Understandable. Um, Ultimate Comics publishes the stories about the Ultimates, which is a reimagined version of the more well-known Avengers. Man, oh. 
Comic books are so intricate and like convoluted and just so out of control because they, you know, the same characters have been around for, you know, nigh on 70 years at this point. And they just have to keep like killing them off <laughs> and like creating new ones and like making them spawn a clone and like all this weird stuff. So I don't know how, I mean, God bless the people who like keep track of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, Charlie um, <laughs> was so excited about this question that I was like, okay, I will find a way to write it in, but it took me so long. This was the question that took me the longest to write because I had to go through all the lore and make sure that I was like, oh, man. saying everything the correct way. And oh yeah. Got, I, had yeah. The, I had the wrong vampire at first. Apparently Captain America is out here fighting multiple vampires, Nazi, Nazi vampires. Yes. Like, it's <gasps> crazy. So how can you man. keep up? Engineer yeah, yeah. Josh got it right. He, yeah, of oh, course he did. Good so. job. Yeah. Well, thank you to Charlie for for yeah. inspiring that. And I'm sorry I pulled something so like weirdly obscure. <laughs> I was like, "Ha ha, I got you. I won't think of a, of a regular captain, you know, comic book character." Anyway, um that was a great this quiz. was such a delight, Jordan. Such oh, so a delight. Glad. I'm so glad that you guys like let me be on this show. I'm so happy. Oh, of course. <laughs> I just thank cold you. emailed you and you said yes. Of we course, love it. of course. We're we're so glad that we did. Thank you so much for all of your wonderful knowledge. You are welcome back anytime to wax poetic about your slime molds or your uh your wavy boys or, or your, your wavy boys or your spiky dudes. <laughs> yeah. Happy to happy to listen to you all over again. That was wonderful. Um, thank you to everyone listening. Oh, is there anything that you would like to plug, Jordan? Like a uh, maybe a nonprofit or a, a website or a Twitter account or, or anything. Or like a like a TV show about coral if people want to mm. learn more. I don't know. Okay, Just if you're interested in bleaching and looking at coral bleaching, uh, there's a really phenomenal documentary called Chasing Coral where this mm. team actually goes out and tries to take photographs of the same spot before and after <gasps> it bleaches so that you can see that side by side. They do like a time lapse of it. Um, and so the documentary is very much about corals and the problems that they're facing, but it's also interesting because it's talking about the process of creating the documentary yeah. where they're having all these challenges because working underwater is terrible and saltwater <laughs> yeah. destroys everything. So it's a really, that's a really good one um, with some really great science communicators in it. Um, that's, I don't really have anything. That sounds about. awesome. Um, yeah. though. That sounds, that sounds great. That's really a great cool. documentary. If yeah. You're interested. Okay. Yeah. We, and you know what? We will, um, we will post that on our socials as well. Um, along with, with the, you know, episode announcement mm -hmm. to kind of keep that in everybody's brain. So, um, thank you again, Jordan. Thank and you. Thank you to, and thank you to everyone who's been listening. And we'll catch you all next time. Bye. Bye.